Hello, and welcome to Northern Hills Bible Chapel. This message was recorded on August 22, 2020. My name is Steve Page, and I'll be sharing with you from Psalms chapter 8. I'd like to start with just a brief prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray for those who are listening and myself, Father, as we walk through Psalm 8, that you would open our hearts and minds to what you have for us to learn in the message. Father, help us to remember to be humble around our brothers and sisters, and to always be thankful, Father, for sending Jesus Christ and what he suffered for us. In your name I pray, Amun. So before I get into Psalm chapter 8, uh, you can turn there in the Bibles if you'd like to. I'd like to just start with one of the notes that goes just above it in most Bibles. I'm going to be reading from the New King James Version today. Um, it, the note above it says, The chief musician on the instrument of Gath, a psalm of David. Uh, the part here that I'd like to focus on is the fact that this is a psalm of David. Earlier at the chapel, we've had several recorded messages uh, with regards to Psalm 22 and 23. Uh, both of these are some of David's psalms. And we've been talking about how in the Old Testament, there were passages that you could read and that they alluded to things that would be in the New Testament, but people may not have completely understood. And this is the same case for Psalm chapter 8, also a psalm of David. Uh, background on David is he was God's chosen king. Uh, you can read about that in 1 Samuel 13, uh, verse 14, and Psalm uh, chapter 78, verse 70. Uh, I've already mentioned that he's uh, written several different psalms throughout the book of Psalms, but he's not the only one. Um, I think that David's psalms reflect himself. Uh, some folks believe that some of the psalms he wrote were based just on the Spirit leading him, and he didn't uh, necessarily feel or understand those things. I believe that um, Matt Carter gave a message on Psalm chapter 22, and in that he indicated that he felt the same as I do, that, that David felt these things as he wrote them, and that's why he could be so passionate about them. Yes, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it was also something that was on his heart. And some of the other things that we've talked about in the Psalms previously was about Jesus, the Messiah. So just a little background on the word Messiah when we use that. That's really the English way of pronouncing the Hebrew word for Messiah or anointed one. Uh, the Roman word is uh, Christos. So you may hear those terms uh, depending on who you're listening to about the Messiah. Um, and the Jews believed that there would be a Messiah coming, an anointed one, and that he would be a king that would usher in the Messianic age. This Messianic king, or, or King Messiah, as uh, sometimes it's called in English, uh, he would be part of the lineage of David because of God's promise that David would have a descendant on the throne for eternity. Uh, this is in Second Samuel chapter 7. We read... Uh, starting at verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up for you your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. In my mind, it's not surprising then that David would write about his future offspring, who would also be the King Messiah. Here we have Psalm chapter 8, written by David. 
and it starts with, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glories above the heavens. Before I continue, I just want to ask that very first line, O Lord, our Lord. Does this apply to you? Do you believe that the Lord God is your Lord? We'll get into some future aspects about Jesus Christ, but do you believe that Jesus Christ died, that he is the only way to heaven? If not, I encourage you to find some contacts on the Northern Hills Bible Chapel website and ask more questions. We'd love to talk to you about that. Continuing on. Verse 2 states, Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. Now, I've read a couple of different ways that people take the idea of babies and nursing infants and how God basically provides for them. Uh, and then I've read some other things about that. I, I think I'd like to stick to really the, the key part of this, uh, the clear part. God is so amazing that even those who are helpless can defeat his enemies. Yes, even those who seem helpless or seem less capable in others' eyes. I'm not saying that God doesn't use excellent people. For instance, in the New Testament, he used Paul, who was considered by many to be an elite. He knew everything. Well, I shouldn't say everything, but he knew a lot about Scripture and about God, about the Old Testament, and he could argue so well for why Jesus was the Messiah King. But God can use anyone. David, who we talked about earlier, started off as a shepherd. He was the youngest son, not the eldest, not the biggest, not the strongest, not the one that everybody would pick, but he was the one that God chose. Uh, Peter, in the New Testament, was a simple fisherman, but he and John were brought to testify to the Sanhedrin and, and to talk about how they used the name of Jesus to heal. And basically, those those people that were interviewing him and, and questioning him were considered basically rock star theologians of the day. Uh, you can read about that in Acts chapter 4, specifically verse 13. So I just want to ask the question now. As you think about how great God is and how he can use anybody, is God putting something on your heart? Have you heard his call but feel like you need more training? I just want to bring up Moses for a moment. Moses, in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 4, uh, God came to him in a burning bush. I don't know if any of you have ever talked to a burning bush. I definitely have not. I would be pretty amazed. But God said to Moses, I want you to go to Egypt. And I can understand Moses' reluctance, right? He killed somebody in Egypt. He doesn't really want to go back there. That's why he left. But God told him to go back. And what was his excuse? He argued, I don't know how to speak well. I've never had great speech. You can read that in Exodus chapter 4, verse 10. And in the end, um, God decided to have him bring Aaron with him in order to fulfill what God wanted. All I'm saying with this is don't let fear or doubt prevent you from acting on God's calling. If you need help or assistance, ask God for help. He listens. What he wants is the obedient servant. So just remember, whether you have a lot of talent, a little talent, whether you think you, you're um, capable, um, 
if God's calling you to do something, start the process, and you'll be amazed at what he does for you. Reading Psalm chapter 8, verse 3, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have ordained. So I read that, and I really thought about how big the universe is. Have you ever thought about how big the universe is? Or how long eternity is? I admit, for the how long eternity is, I've thought of, tried to think about that. I can't wrap my head around it. You know, I actually stopped thinking about it when I was younger. Uh, when I say younger, probably when I was in my teens, because I would give myself a headache. You just can't imagine how long eternity is. I can barely remember, you know, 15 to 20 years ago. I remember a few things, but not in great detail. And yet God has been around uh, an infinite amount of time, all of eternity, and he knows exactly what's going on. He created all of the heavenly bodies that we see, the sun, the moon, the stars, and he's ordained them. He created it. I don't think we fully comprehend just how powerful and amazing God truly is. Continuing into verses 4 through 8, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. So who are we? Unlike all of creation, he made us in his image. That's in Genesis 1.27. We were created and it was good. That's in Genesis 1.31. But here's the problem. Sin entered the world. We see that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. We know there will be a seed that will crush the serpent, although he'll also be bruised in the process, Genesis 3.15. But we were separated from God due to our sinfulness, if you look at Isaiah 59, 2, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. Now, I admit, Isaiah 59 was written to the nation of Israel, who was currently in sin at that time, and they were being told to basically repent and come back to God. But it still shows the general way that God looks at sin. He can't be around it. It creates a separation Unlike the garden where Adam and Eve could walk and talk with God, we don't really see much of that uh, after they leave the garden. But there's a, a general separation. People are sinning. They're not trying to be with God. They're trying to do their own thing. After sin entered the world, we also have to think about man's place in relation to God. Now this is further down the line, but Isaiah 41:14, Fear not, you worm Jacob. You men of Israel, I will help you, says the Lord, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. You know, even despite the fact that he calls Jacob a worm, and if you remember from Psalm 22, uh, David said, I'm a worm and not a man, it, it, it puts us into this context. We understand that in comparison to God, we're almost nothing, right? Right? 
from an intellectual standpoint, we can't stand up to him. From a power standpoint, we're nothing. We're a, a little worm in the ground that just moves around and does nothing but eat dirt. But at the same time, when we were first created, he made us in his image, and we are still made in his image. We still have value to him, and he loves us. Even in the passage in Isaiah 41, 14, he tells the nation of Israel he will help them and that he is their Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. So the question I have next from that passage is not necessarily who we are, but who is the Son of Man? The phrase Son of Man occurs in the Hebrew uh, Old Testament 161 times. There's basically two books that contain, well, there's one book that contains most of those references, and that's Ezekiel. There's one reference in Daniel. I'm going to pass those for now. Um, it's used 66 times throughout uh, kind of the rest of the Old Testament. Um, two of those times it's used in a somewhat positive context, uh, but the majority of them it's actually used in a negative context. And by negative context, I mean this. I'm going to read from Psalm chapter 12, verse 1. This is also written by David. Remember, David is the one who wrote Psalm 8 that specifically talks about um, the Son of Man written there. Now he's talking about the Son of Man again in Psalm 12, verse 1. And he says, Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. Uh, the other passage I want to read about kind of a negative context is Ecclesiastes 9.3. This is an evil that is done under the sun, that one thing happens to all. Truly, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. If you were a Jewish person living at this time, you would read the sons of men, or man, and you would typically think, either mankind or the nation of Israel. And the reason why I say the nation of Israel is because oftentimes in prophecy, we hear about the other nations being related to animals. Um, you can see that in parts of Daniel and other books. So normally, when you'd interpret this passage, you'd say, oh, okay, the son of man is mankind. And it could, in this case, actually kind of reflect to how David felt, right? He had received some level of honor and, and glory from the Lord by being the king of Israel. Uh, however, I'd like to continue to look at one of the more common areas that, this, that uh, this was used, and that's in Ezekiel. Ezekiel has 93 instances where God calls Ezekiel son of man. And I'm going to read from chapter 2, Ezekiel chapter 2. And he said to me, son of man, stand on your feet. And I will speak to you. Then the Spirit entered me when he spoke to me and set me on my feet. And I heard him who spoke to me. And he said to me, Son of man, I am sending you to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day, for they are impudent and stubborn children. I am sending you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, as for them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are a rebellious house, yet they will know that a prophet has been among them. And I'm going to stop there. That was verse 5. So as you can see from Ezekiel, 
when the Son of Man is used in this instance, God is talking specifically to Ezekiel, who is a prophet. And he's saying, Son of Man, they're going to know that there was a prophet amongst them, even if they don't like the message. Now, I read that verse, and having uh, seen and read the New Testament, I instantly think, wow, that sounds an awful lot like Jesus. He authenticated his message with miracles, and he approached them, and he basically told them what the Lord really wanted, and what did they do? They refused it. They rebelled against it. One last passage I'd like to read about the Son of Man is out of Daniel chapter 7, starting at verse 13. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. This passage is uh, looking into the future, um, and it's actually very difficult for a lot of groups to understand who one like the Son of Man is. You see, uh, many many of the those of the Jewish belief believe that the Lord God is one, that he's not and cannot be divided into parts. And because of that, the Son of Man here is going to the Ancient of Days. He obviously can't be part of God if he's going to the Ancient of Days. So the traditional view is that that Son of Man is actually... Um, uh, the nation of Israel. Uh, Isaiah uses the nation of Israel a lot as the servant in, in the singular term. So here you could say son of man. Um, I, as a Christian, I really think that Daniel 7 is not that difficult to understand. Uh, I believe that Jesus Christ, although being fully man here on earth, was also fully God, and that God truly is one, as well as with the Holy Spirit. They are just one entity. They're, they have different personalities. And I support the fact that I think Daniel 7 is Jesus Christ for the Son of Man from Revelation 1-7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even, though, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. So I just read that single verse out of Revelation chapter 1, and the heat that's being talked about there is Jesus. Uh, in addition to the Son of Man comments that we've been talking about, so so far in the Old Testament, had you not known about Jesus, you would relate it to mankind. You might relate Son of Man to uh, the nation of Israel, possibly. Um, you might have related Son of Man to, uh, if it used in the same way as Ezekiel, to either Ezekiel himself or someone that um, is prophesying or, or doing God's work. But Jesus calls himself the Son of Man through all four Gospels. And one of the things I asked myself, you know, Jesus said a lot of things that made the, the Pharisees and Sadducees really upset. But he called himself the Son of Man a lot, and nobody really seemed to react to that. And I, I think it's because in their minds, the Son of Man was not God himself. The Son of Man was just someone who was a normal person, or could have even been a sinful person, right? They wouldn't have argued that Jesus sinned. In fact, they would rather him sin, and then they could say he wasn't Messiah King and that they could get rid of him. But instead, uh, they, they, they really couldn't say too much with regards to him calling himself the Son of Man. But I think this Son of Man directly ties back to our Psalm chapter 8. 
Now you may be saying, wait a minute, Steve. Psalm chapter 8 also talks about how he was made a little lower than the angels. And then earlier, you just said, wait, he was fully God and fully man. How exactly does that work? I, I admit, I struggle a little bit with the fully God, fully man, because I think it's outside the bounds of, of my full knowledge. But I can tell you that, led by the Holy Spirit, we can look at uh, the author who wrote Hebrews chapter 2, and I think he gives us a little bit more insight into this. Hebrews 2, starting at verse 5. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we will see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. I want to note two things here. The first is that verbatim, Psalm, parts of Psalm 8 were directly quoted here. And then, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8, we also see that the glory and honor that was received was due to the suffering and death on the cross. The amount of humility that Christ showed to not only leave his heavenly place, to make himself a little lower than the angels, but then, as part of his death, he was not crowned with glory and honor yet. He actually started with a crown of thorns, uh, as listed in John chapter 19, verse 2, for us. His creation, which, honestly, we want the things that we create to do things for us, but yet his creation, which should be grateful for the life that it received, instead turned on its creator. He could have destroyed us all, but instead he died for us. I want to read another passage talking about Christ's humility from Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. By humbling himself, he was crowned with glory and honor, glory so grand it extends into the heavens, as we first read in Psalm 8, verse 1, and honor so deep, that everything on heaven, earth, and under the earth bow to him. The last verse of 8 
Psalm 8 reminds us of just how excellent is God's name in all the earth. And in the passage from Philippians chapter 2, we heard how his name is the name when heard that everyone bows to. Isn't it incredible how much Jesus loved us, how much he humbled himself in order to die for us? Shouldn't we be grateful? I admit, there are times in my life I could definitely be more grateful to the Lord. When times are hard or times are tough, I often don't want to be thankful that I'm one of the Lord's. I, I, I want what I want. But I know that God has a plan, and I need to trust him. He had a plan from the beginning. I remember I mentioned when sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3, and he had a plan to crush that sin in Genesis 3.15. He has been playing out his love story for us, his redemption for us, throughout time. And Psalm chapter 8 is just one little snippet of a big, big story about how Jesus loves us. I'd like to take just a few quick moments and mention that, yes, we can look at the back at the Psalm 8 and other Psalms now, and we realize the things that were said then apply to Jesus' coming this first time. But I don't want us to feel full of ourselves about how, ah, we have all this knowledge and we understand, because there are still mysteries to come. I'd like to turn our attention to Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. And this is talking about uh, the day of the Lord. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So I just I want to remind folks, we have a wonderful, wonderful way of looking back at the Old Testament and understanding aspects that were probably never understood fully. We also have the Holy Spirit to help us understand what's in Scripture, but there are still things to come that we don't understand, and it's okay. We need to believe and trust in God, just as those in the Old Testament needed to believe and trust in the Messiah coming. In addition to trusting in the Lord's timing for Jesus' second coming, I've also been thinking through the passages about some applications for my own life right now. And I, I think one of them that hit me the most is being humble. I mean, true humility, not the self-deprecating kind where it's like you keep talking about how you can't do this and that and you're not capable, blah, blah. But in, instead, I'm, I'm really talking about truly understanding and wanting others to succeed. You know, it, it can be really hard when maybe you have a colleague or a coworker, and you've really worked with them a lot and suddenly they climb up the ranks at work and you don't you know I, it can be really hard to be happy for those people because you're like wait shouldn't i be doing that as well shouldn't i be climbing up but you know rather than comparing uh, ourselves or trying to plot against them or backstab them to climb up God tells us to love our neighbor as ourself. Can't, can't we humble ourselves and let God lift us up? 
instead of trying to get lifted up by the people around us. Another application I thought a little bit about, and I alluded to this earlier, is also, am I, am I trying to make excuses to not do what God's asked me to do? Is there anything in my life where I say I am not capable, so I'm not going to do it? I don't trust in the Lord. Or do I create roadblocks? Do I say, oh, I'm so busy. I don't have time for that. Don't you know all the stuff going on right now? I, I, don't have, I don't have time to study scripture. I don't have time to do this and that. I, I can't help, you know, my friend or my neighbor. I, you know, they don't really want my help anyways. Or am I too scared to talk to a person about Jesus or just in general? Oh, that guy over there, he, he, he looks poor. Uh, I'm afraid he'll, he'll, you know, try to rob me if, if, for instance, there might be a homeless person on the street. It, you know, should, shouldn't we listen to what God's putting on our hearts? Now, I'm not talking about ignoring personal responsibility for safety, but at the same time, if God's putting something on your heart and it's not an unsafe situation, I don't think we should be putting up lots of roadblocks in order to try to do what God's asking us to do. In fact, I think we'll receive quite the blessing. Thank you for spending time with me in Psalm chapter 8, and God bless.